Good afternoon, and thanks for joining us for our corn and soybean outlook update from the Purdue Center for Commercial Agriculture. I'm Jim Minter, professor and director of the Center for Commercial Agriculture, and joining me today are my two colleagues, Nathan Thompson, who's an assistant professor in the Department of Ag Economics, and Michael Langemeyer, who's a professor in Ag Economics and also associate director of the center. So we're talking today largely because USDA released their WASDE report, their World Ag Supply Demand Estimates last week, uh, with some interesting updates. So let's just kind of walk through some of the details and then we'll uh, cover it in, in some of the key topics in a little more detail later, but just kind of an overview. Um, changes on the US corn balance sheet, they raised the corn export forecast by 75 million bushels. That gives a number up to 2.85 billion bushels. No change in protected feed usage. They did raise ethanol usage by 75 million bushels. We'll talk more about that later. They reduced the projected carryover by 150 million bushels to a total of 1.107 billion bushels. That's about 7.4% of projected usage. And then no change in the marketing year average corn price for 2020, largely because of how deep we are into the marketing year. If you look at the 2021 crop balance sheet, and this is the second month that USDA has provided that 2021 crop balance sheet, uh, no change in yield, that'll, that'll stay constant here for quite a while until they actually start doing the objective yield estimates later in the year. Uh, expect corn production unchanged then at, at roughly 15 billion bushels. Uh, that number could change though later this month when the acreage report comes out, and we'll talk more about that later as well. Um, ethanol usage at 5.2 billion bushels, that's about 5% higher than in 2020. That's no change, I think, from last month. Uh, projected exports at 2.45 billion bushels, 12% below 2020s. That projection, I think, is unchanged from last month. Um, that does pull down the ending stocks, however, to 100 to 1.35 billion bushels. That's 150 million bushels lower than May. And that's really all coming out of the fact that the carryover from the 2020 crop into the 2021 crop year is projected to be smaller than what they were projecting earlier in the year. Um, that gives an, and it gives us an ending stocks estimate for the 2021 crop. This would be at the end of the 2021 marketing year, next August or September 1, uh, 9% of usage. That's down about 1% from the May estimate. And again, that's because of what they've done with the 2020 crop balance sheet. Um, if you look on the world side, no change Brazil's 2021 corn production from their May estimate. Uh, and no change in China's expected imports from all sources compared to the May estimate. So on the world side, no, no, no major changes going forward. If you look at the ending stocks forecast and look at how that's changed throughout the course of the marketing year, it's pretty interesting. I've showed this chart before, and of course now we've got some updates and notice how we keep shrinking that ending stocks forecast now to just a little over a billion bushels. And you know as recently as March, that 2020 crop ending year for uh, a carryover estimate was 1.5 billion bushels. So down 400 million bushels just since March. Um, if you take a look at, at the next slide, Ed. So the ending stocks as a percentage of usage for the 2020 crop year down to just a little over 7%. And notice that even with uh, expectations for relatively large acreage, um, essentially record yield projection, we'd only push that carryover up to 9% of usage. And, uh, you know, that, that tells me that we're still going to be in a tight supply situation, uh, even with a pretty normal crop this year. Uh, there's going to be some caveats to that with respect to what takes place with respect to acreage. And we'll talk more about that a little later. If you look on the world stocks side, 
that did tighten the world stocks just a little bit compared to what they released a month ago. So they've got world corn stocks at 24% for this marketing year and then rising slightly to 25% for the 2021 marketing year. And I guess we'll talk more about this re related to soybeans later, but this is a different situation than soybeans. World stock levels are not as tight in corn as they are in soybeans. So if you go back to the 2011, 2012, 2013 timeframe, especially 11 and 12, we saw world stock levels that were quite a bit tighter than what we're currently projecting. And that's um, kind of an open question mark as to whether those, how accurate those are. I've had some people question that. Um, over 60% of those world stocks estimates are really in one country, namely China, uh, which means that we're maybe a little less confident of the stats there than, than perhaps some other locations. There's been some issues with respect to usability, uh, just how large the stocks are, whether or not they're actually in, in good enough shape to be to actually be used. So um, if you look at exports, and that's where a lot of the interest is hinged lately, uh, total corn exports shipments as a percentage of the WASD estimate uh, through the first week of June, running ahead of the five-year average. So we're still sitting uh, above that five-year average. The current one was about 73%. It's not quite as large as we were back in the 2016 marketing year, but still, still looks uh, like we're in pretty good shape. If you look at the uh, exports in terms of bushels and look at what's going on with respect to China, um, total corn exports so far through just the very beginning of June here, uh, about 2.1 billion bushels, not quite 2.1, but pretty close. Um, and exports to China, 600 million bushels. So uh, corn exports up about 75% compared to last year with China accounting for 66% or two thirds of that overall increase. Uh, if you take a look at what's going on in the ethanol, the other big source of demand that we kind of worry about, uh, ethanol prices have really surged on the U.S. travel rebound. So these are monthly average unleaded gas and ethanol rack prices uh, provided by the Nebraska Energy Statistics Agency. And notice as you look at that green line, how the dramatic rebound that we've seen in ethanol prices as recently as December, that ethanol price was just 60 cents a gallon. Uh, really taken off here as we headed through the rest of the winter and into the spring. And the most recent estimate I've got on there is, is for May. We don't have any data yet for June, but uh, the May estimate, 262, and actually exceeding the recovery we've seen in, in gasoline prices. Um, if you take a look at ethanol margins, and, and that this really explains what's going on in the margins, the strength in ethanol prices has been enough, even with these high corn prices, to keep ethanol margins positive. This is based on the Iowa State data from the Center for Ag and Rural Development, Iowa State, where they maintain a kind of a simulated ethanol plant database to monitor how those margins are changing on a day-to-day -day basis. And, and you can see that since uh, early February, they've been positive. Uh, they have been higher than recently. This is data through the, uh, I think the 4th or 5th of June, 4th of June. So they have tailed off a little bit. Uh, but still very positive. And so that's been a boon. And, and I think Nathan will talk about that later in terms of ethanol uh, demand for corn going into ethanol plants. Um, ethanol production is rapidly approaching 2019 levels. You know, if you go back, uh, so just for a point of clarification, earlier in the year, we were comparing ethanol production on a week to week basis with last year with the 2020 numbers. Um, we're at the stage now where it makes a lot more sense really to compare back to the pre-pandemic area, which would be 2019. Uh, 
But notice when you compare what's going on recently to 2019, we are getting very, very close to production levels that are equal to what we were doing in 2019. The last couple of weeks, we've been between one and maybe 4% below um, a year of 2019 levels. And I think expectations are that we're going to hit uh, those 2019 levels as we head through the summer as travel rebound continues to occur. We're just heading into the vacation season, uh, the driving season, if you will. And I think there's an expectation that we're going to see that continue to rebound, continue to improve. So, uh, Michael, you've taken a look at what's going on. So that kind of wraps up what was on the WASD report with respect to corn. Michael, you've taken a look at what's going on with respect to the 2021 crop. So I'll let you elaborate. There's really two stories here. One story is, is when you look at the 18 major states in Indiana, we're looking at uh, 72 to 73% of the corn, corn rank good to excellent. However, uh, when you look at South Dakota and North Dakota in particular, uh, those percentages are much lower. Uh, North Dakota was only at 42% good to excellent on June 6th. Uh, South Dakota only 46%. A couple of other other areas where we've seen some uh, uh, drought conditions uh, or drought concerns is Michigan and Missouri. And so and so, not every state is is looking at this 70% uh, good to excellent. Yeah, good point, Michael. And I think in the case of Missouri, it really hasn't been drought. It's been more too much water as opposed to too little. But nevertheless, it has hampered growing conditions. And yeah, maybe as this, as this chart suggests, and so again, that North and South Dakota region, uh, one of the, uh, the, if you look at the Northern Corn Belt, with the exception of Michigan, you're still looking at some pretty good uh, uh, rankings in terms of uh, percentage, uh, good to excellent, but you can see uh, Northern Iowa, Minnesota, and and uh, and Southern Wisconsin are, are a little drier than normal. And so uh, that's something we'll have to keep our eye on. Yeah, and Michael, as you take a look at the planning intentions on the uh, planning intentions report that came out at the end of March, one reason we want to keep an eye on those is the big increase in acreage in some of those states, right? Yes, uh, North Dakota and South Dakota, I don't know if, if very many people are aware of this, but it's, it's a, a, a full 10% of, of the U.S. corn crop. And so one out of eight, every 10 acres comes from North Dakota and South Dakota, with South Dakota having more acres than North Dakota. Yeah, so that's an important region of the country. And, uh, you know, I think one of the things about the drought monitor is we have to be a little cautious in getting um, and how you interpret that. One of the things the drought monitor does is it tends to lag changes in conditions. Um, so if you get some timely rains, the drought monitor doesn't necessarily pick that up real fast. You can see an improvement in crop conditions that maybe exceeds what you might see or expect based on the drought monitor. But it is a situation that's uh, certainly going to require some pretty timely rains as we go through the course of the growing season for them to have good crop production this year. At least that's yeah, the way it looks right now. Yeah, certainly early in the season, of course. I mean, uh, that July-August period is more critical for corn and soybeans, uh, respectively. But but uh, uh, what we can say at this point is is the corn crop did not uh, did not get a, a very good start in North and South Dakota, and so we'll just have to see if, if that improves in the upcoming weeks. Yeah, good point. So uh, Nathan, you've taken a look at corn basis and uh, there's been some changes there. Yeah, so it's been really interesting to kind of follow what's been going on here from a marketing perspective in basis in particular. So here we have um, uh, nearby basis, um, corn basis for central Indiana. So this comes from the Purdue Center for Commercial Agriculture's uh, crop basis tool, which is available on the website. 
and, and we've seen, uh, if you look at this chart, you kind of see it bouncing around a little bit uh, as we look at what is kind of going on with nearby versus deferred futures, as well as kind of the roll from the May to July uh, contract. And so if we go to the next slide, we can look at uh, central Indiana corn basis just consistently off of that July futures contract, uh, which maybe gives us a little better feel for what we've seen going on here in the last couple of weeks. And so again, just to, to remind everybody, so the blue line here represents uh, the historical average basis uh, in central Indiana. And again, here I'm using the, the three-year average. So the most recent three uh, crop years, 17, 18, 18, 19, and 1920. You could select any years that you want to look at uh, when you go use the tool. The black line on the other hand is basically what's happened this crop marketing year. So from the fall of 2020 through now. And so what you can see is, you know, uh, current year's basis has been running uh, ahead of or above that blue year, uh, the blue line, the historical average there. Uh, and that premium uh, has started to erode here uh, of late, indicating kind of a, a weakening of basis or a softening of basis uh, across most, much of the, the regions that we track uh, in the Eastern Corn Belt. And so you can see, you know, a month or so ago when we did our last webinar, we were looking um, at the, the current year's basis being about 40 cents above that historical average or where we would have expected it to be based on the historical average. Uh, and now we're looking at that being only about 25 cents above, which again is, you know, we still have very positive basis uh, relative to history, but we, we're seeing that premium uh, start to kind of uh, soften a little bit uh, based on, on what we're seeing going on from both the supply and the demand side uh, as we transition to thinking more about what's going on in the new crop conditions. The other thing that I've been doing here on the next slide is looking at uh, the current year's basis relative to some previous years uh, that compare similarly from, from a, a stocks situation, right? So uh, here we're looking at, uh, again, the black line being the current year's line. And the blue line, I've selected out some years that had similar uh, stocks to use ratio uh, as what we're seeing for corn this year. So 2010, basically through 2013 are the four years that I've pulled out there. And so you can see that, you know, um, the, the basis that we're currently seeing is right in line with the 25 cent threshold that those historical years uh, indicate would be a basis level that we might see with the types of, of stocks um, that we currently have. We've also been talking about, okay, well, that could potentially mean uh, some opportunities for some, some pop or some real uh, big increases in basis later in the summer. And so again, we've, we've been marking this 50 cent threshold kind of further out there into July and August as something that people might be thinking about as they're thinking about whatever remaining old crop that they have. Uh, and we've been saying, you know, that's obviously a possibility. I, I think it's still a possibility uh, that we see basis of those levels, but maybe less likely than what we had uh, been thinking throughout the, uh, the last couple of months. And again, what I think is going to drive that opportunity for uh, some, some bigger basis opportunities would be one, obviously weather. And so, you know, Michael indicated that we have some uh, locations that are having some weather issues, but overall, pretty good um, uh, crop ratings at this point in the season. Again, that could change. And then also, you know, demand. I think uh, later in those summer months, uh, a lot of times when we see these big plays in basis, it's driven by some sort of um, uh, demand issue. So uh, lately that's been a lot of export demand. So if there's some sort of thing where 
Brazil is not able uh, to offer exports uh, because of the growing conditions down there. The U.S. could become uh, the major player there in the export market, and that could provide some opportunities uh, for some big bases play later in the year uh, as we look forward. But again, I, I think the important thing to think about as we look at current basis situation and we think about you know what opportunities are out there is that those large plays and uh, basis that we've been talking about for a while now, uh, given the stock situation, are probably less likely than they were at one point, but still something. Uh, if you have some old crop and you haven't taken it, you know, they're out there, but, you know, you need to calculate the risk there because there's a lot of risk and basis uh, as we look into those summer months. The other thing here is, again, this is the same kind of thought process, but just I, I, I left out the 2011 and 2012 crop years uh, because those uh, are more of a drought issue. So a, a supply problem. We didn't really have a supply problem in 2020. It was more uh, driven by demand, right? Uh, a, big jump in demand, which gave us the stocks situation that we have now. So when you look at just 10 and 13 as kind of your comparison years, you can see that, you know, we're already well above that 10 cent threshold there uh, at the beginning of June based on those two historical years. And really we've about reached that 30 cent threshold. I think we're at about 25 cent positive basis uh, in central Indiana. So we're, we've about hit that threshold that's later out in the summer months. And so again, that's just giving you some targets or some numbers to kind of quantify what we've seen going on uh, and what you might be thinking about going forward. But again, realize that there's risk involved with that, um, especially what we've seen going on on the future side of things. Uh, and then also, you know, I would say that the opportunities for those are less likely than they were at one point uh, in the marketing year. That's a good point, Nathan. I think the key here is could, could we see a repeat of what happened in some of those prior years later this summer? Sure, we could. What's the probability of that? Well, it, it doesn't appear to be real high. And so if you choose to hang on to try and capitalize on that, it could be a case of high reward, but high risk, right? Sure. And so it's not something you probably want to bet very much of your production on. But there there is that possibility. And it's going to, I mean, the bottom line is we're not going to know until late July and August whether or not those are going to be realized. And uh you know, it could be driven by exports, as you mentioned. It could also be driven by some strength, maybe in the ethanol market. Um, those would probably be the two drivers, as well as, well as just crop conditions in here in the U.S. But um, so you've also taken a look at an ethanol plant basis, and that's an interesting story in and of itself. It really is. And it's interesting to kind of uh, think about this through the lens of what you just talked about as it relates to production levels and ethanol, as well as the margins and those overall prices. And so we've been looking at this for a while. And again, this, this is a little bit of a busy slide, but when you think about ethanol over the last five years or so, I mean, there's just so much that has happened in that market. And when you want to think about basis, you got to kind of take it all into consideration. So I'll, I'll quickly summarize what we have here and then try to you know point us to, to kind of what we take away from that. So you've got several lines here. So the blue line is the 2015 to 2017 average. So this is an average of all the ethanol plants that I have access to basis information for in the state of Indiana. So that's like 13 ethanol plants, all averaged into one basis value. And again, the blue line is just the kind of what I call the historical average where I picked out uh, 2015 to 2017. The reason that I didn't include 18, 19, and 1920 is those years had some exceptional things that happened in them that uh, influenced those basis levels. And I think it's important to take those out and, and look at those individually and what happened in those years. So again, 2018, 2019 is the green line here. 
Um, we started out with a uh, relatively weak basis, uh, but then we got into the spring of 2019 uh, and had some planting issues. And so those new crop conditions had big impacts on basis over the summer of 2019 for old crop um, corn. Um, and so we saw this big jump there kind of in the green line in the summer of 2019. The red line is the 2019-2020 crop year where we were running uh, relatively strong uh, basis levels at ethanol plants. Again, the red line being above that blue line, that historical average. And then we get to, this, to the spring of, of 2020 and we have the COVID situation, a huge impact on um, gasoline demand and ethanol in turn. And so we see this huge drop in, in basis levels uh, for ethanol plants. And so, you know, because of those, those uh, kind of extreme events there, you kind of got to take those out of the average. So you're really comparing to something uh, that you think is more quote unquote normal. And so then the last line that you have is the black line. And that's what's happened basically in this crop marketing year. So from the fall of 2020 to now, and what you can see is that, you know, that was really tracking along relatively similar to that historical 15 to 17 average. But since about the turn of the year, so January 1st, We've seen ethanol plant basis increase uh, pretty pretty rapidly, um, I would say, given everything that's been going on. Obviously, we know that ethanol has kind of been ramping up relative to where they were in 2020 uh, with the pandemic situation. Um, but, you know, we've had really high corn prices. And so to see the kind of continued strength in, in ethanol plant basis through kind of the uh, beginning of this year into the summer, uh, is, is really interesting. Uh, so we've seen that increase about 40 cent, a 40 cent increase in basis from January 1 to about now. But then if you look at what's happened over the last month or so, it's interesting to kind of say, you know, okay, well, where, where do we think this is going? It, it certainly appears as though it has maybe slowed down a little bit. Uh, and so I think that the question that you have to ask is, you know, what do we think is going to happen with ethanol plant basis here over the, the rest of the summer? I think that could be really interesting. You know, Jim, you already mentioned kind of uh, increasing uh, demands for travel as people are kind of getting back to more of a normal routine. Will that, you know, pay, play positively here or, you know, has, has ethanol plant basis kind of reached its peak and it's going to uh, maybe start to slow down a little bit, maybe revert towards something more normal? Yeah, that's the big question mark, isn't it? And, uh, you know, we were talking about this before the program. I think both of us expected to see ethanol basis improve and it has maybe a little bit surprised at the rate of increase. And, and I think a big chunk of that is the recovery we've seen in ethanol usage and gasoline usage, demand for travel in general. So, yeah, I, I, I guess my gut feel is uh, looking at this chart, Nathan, um, I'd probably expect ethanol basis to maybe trade sideways from here. Is that kind of where you're at? Yeah, I think that's, you know, it's my best guess, right? Uh, based on what you're showing uh, from the margins and the production point of view, it seems like we're getting back into a little bit of a groove that, that maybe is normal. And so I wouldn't be surprised to see it trade sideways as we kind of, you know, feel out what this new crop is going to look like. Obviously, you know, that could obviously have a big impact if we have some, some weather issues or something like that. But, you know, for the time being, I could see a sideways pattern here for a little bit. And assuming we have a good crop, I could see it maybe slowly starting to revert towards more of a uh, what we've seen historically, maybe not quite as low as that blue line, but at least moving in that direction. Yeah, it's going to be interesting to see how this plays out. But uh, And it's been interesting to see the plants recover. And I think the other thing that uh, I've noticed a little bit, and I haven't looked at it as closely as you have, 
is there's some variability across ethanol plants, right? You're you're showing the average here, but that's uh, that's not true at every single plant, right? Yeah, that's right. That's the tricky thing. Anytime we're dealing with these these averages across several locations. So, like I mentioned, you know, we have 14. Uh, I think it's 14 ethanol plants that are kind of represented here. We're averaging across the entire state of Indiana, but there's definitely a big uh, a disparity in in what those averages could be. And you got to be a little bit careful because I don't I don't know all the local dynamics for each one of them. So I don't want to overstep and say say anything uh, out of line. But you know, they're definitely different from location to location. And why that is in this particular year, I, I'm not going to speculate on. But to your point, um, you know that that 40 cent average uh, is definitely an average. There are some that are closer. Uh, to zero and, and some that are above that 40 cents. And so uh, you, you got to be a little bit careful and uh, how you interpret this. But this definitely gives us a trend of what's going on. Yeah, it, it's and it's different, I think, if you went back in the in the database. Historically, the those ethanol basis levels have tended to track each other maybe a little more closely than what we're seeing this year. We are, in fact, seeing plants respond differently uh, to this changing economic environment. So... So you've also taken a look at uh, new crop pricing opportunities and uh, let's take a look. Yeah, so we, we've been trying to throw this up, you know, um, since probably January or February, just to, to get people's attention. You know, Michael shows us uh, some of his projections on uh, farm income and he uses prices that are derived in a very similar way to, to what I've done here. But really the point is to, to kind of get numbers in front of folks and have them at least be thinking about, you know, what new crop uh, pricing opportunities are out there. And so this morning I pulled those futures prices. So we've got new crop corn trading for $5.75. I go into the basis tool and uh, build an ex expected basis for this fall in central Indiana, 15 cents under. You could go to the tool and, and pull out a specific basis for whatever region that you're in uh, to kind of uh, convert that futures price to an expected cash price. And so I've got that uh, at $5.60, so the $5.75 uh, plus the negative 15 cent basis. So a $5.60 cash price for corn this fall put that into context a little bit, right? That's 20 cents higher uh, than the cash price that, that I had on this same slide a month ago when we did our May webinar. Uh, so, you know, we, we've definitely seen prices rebound here over the last month uh, from a futures perspective. But, you know, for folks that obviously are following the market a little bit closely since the report last Thursday, that's 40 cents less than, than um, what we were looking at just you know two days ago at the, the close when the markets closed Thursday after the report, and so you know I, I think the, what I would caution or what I would want people to think about as you think about these new new uh, crop pricing opportunities is number one realize that there's only one person that's going to sell at the high of the market right uh, it's probably not going to be you. Now, with that said, right, we've seen the markets pull back quite a bit since the report, so Friday and today. But you know we're still looking at very favorable price levels, and if you haven't taken any positions or, or haven't sold any new crop, I'm not telling anybody to sell everything they have, right? I, I definitely wouldn't uh, recommend that. But to be seriously thinking about having a small portion of new crop that you're willing to, to kind of lock in some of these prices, and again, Michael will show us some of those uh, projected income levels. I mean, it, it it should be getting people's attention not to just um, let the fact that the peak has has passed you by. 
uh, make you not do anything at all. I think people still need to be thinking about it. And so just to kind of put that into context, I've got a couple of slides here to kind of get people's uh, minds uh, in, in this mentality of what uh, new crop pricing opportunities might look like. So the first one here, we talked about this on last month's webinar, and I, I thought it was useful to just bring the chart in and show folks what, what we were talking about a little more uh, visually here. So what I have is a 30-year average new crop uh, December futures price index. So basically that's indexed to the first week of January prior to harvest, right? So we're talking about new crop corn futures. So and this year, we're talking about January 1 of 2021, looking at December 21 corn futures, right? And so I create the index so we can compare across years uh, where we have different price levels. But essentially, an index at 100 in the first week of January means that anything above 100 would be a price that was higher than the first week of January. And anything below 100 would indicate a price uh, that was below the first week uh, of January. And so what you can see here is that kind of there is a seasonal pattern here uh, to these new crop um, corn futures with you know anywhere between April and June kind of being the time frame where we see uh, kind of the highest price levels. And again, folks probably aren't surprised to see that time period being the period where we see um, those prices at their highest levels, again, on average, where you know we're in this phase of transitioning between old crop and new crop. We're very concerned about getting the crop in the ground. We're concerned about early season um, weather conditions and all of these kind of things that you, you hear people talk about with weather premiums or weather rallies and futures markets, right? So this, this chart shows that. Uh, but then typically, you know, after we get through those summer months, we see um, that index start to decline uh, as we move towards harvest. Now, again, just like we talked about on the ethanol uh, basis slide, this is an average, right? So this is what we expect to see on average, um, but that doesn't mean that's what happens every year, right? There are certainly years where we see um, prices move in the opposite direction of what I'm showing here. And, and 2020 is an example of when we got to the fall, you know, we saw prices start to increase pretty rapidly. And so, you know, recency bias uh, may make us think that this chart doesn't make sense. But again, when we look over a long period of time, Basically, what this chart tells us, and again, you know, this is this is pretty well known, kind of out there, that a lot of people have said this. That you know, over time, if you follow this strategy of selling some some new crop uh, in those summer months, um, from a futures perspective, that you would be um, it would be a profitable strategy relative to waiting uh, until the fall. Uh, if you did that year over year, doesn't mean you'd win every year, but it certainly means uh, that over the long haul. You would do better than than just waiting till, till fall to harp, um, to make those sales. So um, you know, the point being is to think about what's going on this year in in, in corn. Um, you know, we're definitely kind of in that time frame where we see these markets uh, tend to hit their peaks, maybe towards the end of that, as we look at this chart for corn. So in that you know first second week of June, we start to see that reversion uh, towards those harvest time lows. Uh, you know, is that what we'll see this year? I think that we're certainly moving in that direction. If you look at what's going on in the market, you know, whether or not that will continue to be the case uh, it will be seen. But, you know, if you're thinking about, you know, if you haven't actually made any moves, um, you know, those, the levels that are out there are still profitable, still above most folks breaks, break evens. And so you got to be uh, at least willing to take the time to think about it. I think this is the point. 
It really uh, reinforces slide, the old uh, marketing here, adage, doesn't it, that that you should maybe con consider doing some new crop contracting <clears throat> around Father's Day, right? We had a, a guest speaker at Top Farmer a while back, uh, Chad Hart from Iowa State University, and that was his comment was circle your cal calendar on Father's Day and uh, sell corn, and I believe sell soybeans is kind of his recommendation. And this this chart really kind of reinforces that idea, doesn't it? That, that's exactly right. That's exactly right. And that, those adages are basically built on a chart that looks, you know, very much like this. So another way to think about it, if you uh, move to the next slide, Ed, uh, is um, looking at uh, FarmDoc's um, future price distribution tool. So again, this is just looking at a distribution of what new crop uh, futures prices could be uh, at harvest this fall. So based on you know, what the current price level is, current volatility, uh, they generate distribution and, and look at what, um, what, what the potential range of outcomes would be uh, for those futures prices this fall. And so again, this is just kind of giving you some context on, on what sort of movement we could see, uh, in particular thinking about the downside risk there, if you're not willing to kind of lock in uh, a portion uh, of these prices. So uh, when I went on there this morning, uh, looked at current uh, corn futures price levels uh, of $5.75 and said, all right, well, what's the probability that price is going to decrease by more than a dollar, which really isn't that much, right? We've seen corn prices go uh, down and up a dollar here in the last four weeks. <laughs> so, you know, you can just imagine the amount of volatility that we're seeing in these sorts of models. But basically, the, the model tells us that there's about a 26% chance, so one in four chance that we're going to see corn decline by more than a dollar uh, by the time we get to the fall expiration of that December uh, corn futures contract. So, you know, as you think about downside risk, you know, there is clearly downside risk in this market. Uh, and, and, you know, I again, I want to reiterate the point that don't let the fact that you missed the peak uh, be uh, the mental barrier that uh, leaves you just not selling anything. I still think it's useful to lock in a portion um, of your new crop at these price levels because, again, uh, you know these are the highest prices and the highest kind of profitability levels we've seen in a long time. Yeah, good point. So let's uh, let's turn our attention to soybeans. Uh, if you look at the 2020 crop balance sheet, uh, USDA did reduce the soybean crush estimate by 15 million bushels. No change in projected exports. Uh, carryover did go up to 135 million bushels, and that came out of the crush change. Um, that really wasn't a big change, but it certainly triggered a change in, in mentality. That still left us with uh, a carryover, projected carryover of probably just a little bit under 3% uh, of usage, and that's up from 2.6% in May. But you know, I, th I think what was really probably important there more so than the, the numbers was maybe just the change in, in philosophy or a thought process. Um, if you look at the 2021 crop balance sheet, uh, really no big changes, um, but the ending stocks did go up to 155 million bushels. That's 20 million bushels higher than in 2020. And that was largely coming out of that change in the carryover estimate from this year into the new year and that being reflected in the 2021 crop uh, balance sheet. On the world side, the USDA did increase uh, Brazil's current soybean harvest by a million metric tons, roughly 37 million bushels. Um, no change in their estimate of Brazil's 2022 harvest, but they are expecting a rebound in the Brazilian harvest for this upcoming year. I think it's up about 260 million bushels compared to their current estimate of, of this year's crop. 
and no change in the estimate of uh, China's soybean imports from all sources. So let's take a look at exports. Uh, soybean exports have dropped off pretty sharply here during the month of May in particular. Um, if you look at the numbers, and, and I, this is a chart that I've been updating every month. If you compare this chart to last month, uh, we didn't export very many soybeans in the month of May. In fact, if you look at exports to China, they were trivial. I think uh, maybe just a couple of million metric tons. And if you look at, uh, or maybe a little, actually a couple of million uh, bushels. Uh, and as you look at it on the uh, uh, total side, I think we only exported about a little over 40 million bushels. So. Um, exports seasonally tend to dry up this time of year, and boy, they did this year in, in spades. If you look at where we're at with respect to uh, the percentage of USDA's projection for the year, uh, we're sitting at about 93%. A month ago, we were sitting at about 91% of their estimate. Now, admittedly, they've changed their estimate a little bit over that time frame, but nevertheless, um, not much movement there. And so we're starting to run out of weeks. This is through week 40 of the uh, marketing year. We've got about 12 weeks left. So uh, to hit that remaining 7%, and it's in, that's in a time frame when Brazil is gonna dominate the export channels. So uh, thinking back to some of the things that, that Nathan was talking about with respect to corn and basis, you know, one of the things that we'll probably have to wait and see is what happens towards the end of the marketing year um, some of those years when we've seen these pops and basis on both corn and soybeans, that was really related to the fact that we saw some strength in export demand uh, coming about because we became the residual supplier. And that could be the case again this year, but it's going to be pretty hard to project whether or not that's going to happen, right? Um, that's that's going to be our challenge. If you look at the ending stocks forecast that USDA has published for the 2020 marketing year throughout the course of the last 12 months, you can see how much that's changed over time. So as recently as August, we were projecting a carryover from 2020 into 2021 of over 600 million bushels. And then we're bringing that down pretty sharply to that 120. And I think the expectation for the, from the trade was that USDA would stay with that 120 throughout the rest of the marketing year. And the surprise was when we saw it come up this month to the 135. And as I indicated earlier, I don't think the significance there is the 15 million bushels because realistically, if you think about it from any kind of a, a model projection, 15 million bushels isn't enough of a change to affect your, your price forecast coming out of a model in terms of the change in the equilibrium prices for soybeans. But what it did do is change the sentiment a little bit and made people recognize that maybe we had seen the peak uh, or at least put that thought in people's minds, I think. Um, the other thing that's taken place recently is, uh, you know, one of the big changes in the soybean market, and, and this year has really brought this home, is the relative importance of biofuels uh, and the usage of soybean oil as a biofuel as opposed to strictly a food oil. Um, you know, 10 or so years ago, uh, the quantity of soybean oil going into biofuels was really pretty trivial. Uh, now it's pretty close to being on a par with food usage. That's made soybean oil and in turn soybeans much more sensitive to what's taking place in the biofuels uh, area. And actually some of the negativity I guess we've seen here the last couple of days in soybeans is really probably triggered by weakness in soybean oil and in turn concerns about whether or not the demand strength that we've seen for soybean oil would actually continue. So. We didn't used to have to think about biofuels when we talked about soybeans. 
we do now. Uh, and that's, that's probably been one of the big changes for us. Um, if you look at ending stocks though, we're still looking at a tight situation. Um, so we're talking about some downside risk in, in both corn and soybean prices. And obviously the market has been pretty negative here in recent days. And, and Nathan will talk more about that in a minute. But if you look at it as a uh, ending stocks as a percentage of usage, uh, we're still below th 3% uh, for the 2020 crop year. And basically right at 3% currently projected for the 2021 crop year. Now, one of the wild cards in both the corn and soybean outlook is when you look at those projections for 2021, all the USDA projections are based on the planting intentions released at the end of March. And it's pretty widespread expectation, I think, among the industry that we're going to see larger plantings of both corn and soybeans than what were on the planting intentions report. The big question mark is how much of a bump in plantings are we going to see relative to those planting intentions? And so it's going to make that acreage report very interesting and very, very important this year. Um, but I think we're probably starting to see some expectation of larger acreage for the 2021 crop embedded in some of the price action we're seeing. Uh, meaning the market has already kind of maybe moved a little bit beyond where those planting intentions were and actually maybe implicitly suggesting that the carryovers in the 2021 crop year might not be as tight as what I'm showing on that chart right now based on the current USDA numbers. Um, we'll know more in, in just a couple of weeks. Uh, I guess this is a good time to plug uh, the fact that we'll be doing a podcast just a few hours after that planning um, acreage report is released. So if you haven't tapped into our commercial AgCast podcast, you might want to do that. We'll be recording that that afternoon and it'll be available that evening. So uh, you could get our take on that from the podcast. If you look at soybean stocks to use on a world basis, um, you know, this is a different situation than corn. I, I kind of alluded to this earlier on the soybean side that stocks to use ratio on the world basis is actually pretty close to where we were back in that 2011, 2012, 2013 timeframe. Um, USDA did uh, bump that up just a little bit here for the 2020 crop, uh, largely because of what's going on in the US, but that put us at 24% versus 23 uh, for the 2020 crop here. And then a small increase into the 2021 crop here based on their current production estimates. But those are pretty tight numbers by historical standards. If you look at the chart I've got there, there's really only one year that was significantly lower than that. That was back in 2008 when we got back down to 19%. But that still suggests a lot of volatility out there with respect to soybean prices. So uh, with that, Nathan, you've been looking at the basis situation on soybeans as well. Yeah, so you know, uh, just in terms of what we've been seeing, the story is pretty similar on soybean basis. You know, what we see going on on the, the stock situation is obviously a little bit different. But so we'll start out here. We have central Indiana soybean basis uh, for the nearby futures contract. So again, you see this dip uh, at the end of, of April going into May, where we had kind of um, some divergence between nearby and, and deferred futures contracts. And then we roll to the July futures contract. Again, if we look at that on the next slide, um, just strictly uh, based off of that July futures contract, we get a little better feel for maybe what's been going on, especially of late here. And so again, we've been talking about strength and soybean basis throughout the entire crop marketing year, right? So we've been running uh, well above that uh, historical average, which is the blue line. 
But again, similar to what we, we just talked about with corn, you know, we've seen that, that soybean basis start to weaken here um, the last several weeks. So going back to last month's webinar, we were looking at soybean basis that was 78 cents higher than that historical two-year average, two-year average being what we typically use for soybeans when we're using the tool based on some research that we did that, that's kind of the best fit there for that um, kind of building that expectation. We've seen that kind of, you know, uh, narrow down to only about 44 cents above uh, that historical two-year average. Again, 44 cents above that average is still really good basis levels. But as you kind of think about the trend here, what's going on, the direction of that change, you have to start to think about, you know, seeing some weakening of soybean basis uh, that we've seen here and what will um, happen here over the rest of the summer month. And so again, on the next slide, we're, we're looking at um, the uh, current year's basis relative to a year where we had similar stocks to use. So again, going back to that 2013, 2014 crop year uh, for soybeans, where we had stocks to use that was similar to where we're at now at about 3%. And you can see that actually that black line has tracked really closely uh, to the blue line through most of that year. And again, looking at that, you know, June or so timeframe, we've pretty much hit that 35 cent uh, target. So if you want to call it a target, uh, that uh, that previous kind of tight supply year would have would have suggested. Uh, you know, if you look further out kind of into July and August, you can see there's some higher thresholds out there that we've kind of mentioned previously. So 75 cents. Uh, maybe in July, you know, well over a dollar there in August. And again, I, I would say it's a similar story to what, what we talked about with corn. You know, those numbers could potentially still be out there, right? There could be scenarios where we see basis levels uh, that high this summer. If you think about the, the, the uh, current uh, supply situation for soybeans, it's definitely tighter than corn. So probably a little more favorable to uh, seeing something like this this summer with soybeans. With that said, I still think that a lot of what we're seeing going on uh, suggests that you know, numbers that high probably aren't really likely, uh, you know, maybe less likely than they were at some point, uh, but still maybe more likely to see some positive basis play here uh, for soybeans um, as we think about what's going on with the stock situation. They're much more sensitive to any sort of supplier demand shocks that we might see uh, over the next couple of, of, of months or so. So, uh, you know, I, I think that you got to keep both of them uh, in mind and, and you got to keep in mind where we are from a supply situation on corn versus beans as you think about uh, these particular charts and, and what might be out there from a basis perspective. Yeah, I mean, if you think about it, Nathan, it's it's the, the drivers are probably going to be export demand, right? And that's going to be contingent on how quickly Brazil uh, runs out of supplies. Uh, South America in general, but Brazil in particular, probably. And then, uh, as I indicated earlier, you know, soybeans have become much more sensitive to what's going on in the biofuels market than they were just a few years ago. And that's something that we're, you know, I'm, I'm probably not fully acclimated to. I think many of us are probably not fully acclimated to thinking about soybean oil as a source of biofuels, but it has really changed a lot. And looking at USDA's projections going forward, they're anticipating significant growth <laughs> and the quantity of soybean oil going into biofuels. So USDA is anticipating this being a very strong uh, source of, of demand for soybeans going forward. Historically, we always think about you crush soybeans, uh, mostly for the meal and then, and then 
you know, think about how you market the oil, but uh, that's no longer the case. This market has been driven pretty heavily by what's taking place on the oil side. So I threw a chart in for uh, November soybean futures and really just to kind of lead into your next chart or your next slide, uh, Nathan, uh, you know, it's the negativity is out there, right? We've, we've seen the uh, significant decline in these prices the last uh, several days since the report's release. But when you look at the chart, you still realize, okay, if you just chopped off these last few days, you wouldn't feel quite so bad about those prices, right? So, okay. so with that, you've taken a look at uh, what kind of prices you could potentially hedge for fall delivery. Yeah, so that's a great kind of segue in, into this slide. So again, it really just to get people thinking. And so as of this morning, we had uh, new crop uh, soybean futures at $13.85. I used the basis tool, generated a expected basis for this fall in central Indiana of 30 cents under. So that would put us at a $13.55 uh, cash price um, this fall. So again, you know, just to put that into kind of some context, you, know, you showed the futures charts there, which gave people a little bit of idea of, of what we've seen the futures price doing kind of over the last several months or so, uh, which has been really kind of this up and down ride. But uh, for beans, that's 30 cents under, uh, or excuse me, 20 cents under where we were during last month's webinar. And again, re remember when I say that, I mean, our webinar is kind of on an arbitrary day and we see prices fluctuating a lot, but just as a, a little bit of a, a reference point. So compared to where we were last month when we did the webinar, that, that cash price is 20 cents less compared to where uh, soybean prices were, you know, just three days ago, Thursday after the report came out, that's 75 cents less. So again, a really big drop uh, like you showed on, on the futures chart there. And so again, that certainly influences you know the, the the mental aspect of marketing here but i think you know you made a good point when you look at the broader scheme of where that price has been over the, the last six months eight months or so you know th that's still really profitable levels and i think the same same that i said for corn you know don't let the fact that you missed a peak hinder you from making any sort of decisions because that that 13 55 cent cash price still very profitable still uh, something that's going to, you know, make people money. And again, it doesn't have to be everything, but you might want to be thinking uh, about, you know, a portion of your crop. The, the other thing that I would say here as it relates to soybeans specifically uh, that we kind of talked about previously is this idea of, of what's going on with soybean basis and soybean futures. And I think that the, the point is, if you look at new crop soybean bids, you know, they basically the new crop bid has obviously the futures component and then a implied basis that's built in there. And when you look at those bids, they're, they're very similar to what I'm showing here, which is based on a historical average, right? What do we typically see basis in the fall? And so to see, you know, basis, new crop uh, soybean basis bids, you know, 30 cents, maybe plus or minus a couple cents here or there, suggests that, you know, they're currently pricing those markets to be normal, average. But we know that, you know, the stock situation uh, is extremely tight on, on the soybean side. And so I would say if anything, right, that's that's probably a worst case scenario. I would not be surprised to see uh, stronger basis this fall. That doesn't mean that, you know, I'm expecting it to be, you know, where it was this year, but stronger than that historical average, I think is possible. And so if you have that sort of mentality of thinking, okay, you know, we, we think that we could have a little bit stronger basis uh, this fall, that would suggest 
taking a position in the futures market, but not pricing basis, right? So, you know, a lot of folks tend to use uh, forward cash contracts and things uh, of that nature, which, which are fine. That's, that's a tool that a lot of people use can be a very useful tool, but you have to realize that when you uh, sell corn using that forward cash contract, you're locking in basis uh, that they're giving you today. And if I'm telling you that, well, we think there's some upside potential for basis in the fall, that would suggest potentially selling futures, but waiting to lock in that basis component. And so I, I think some people might want to be thinking about that, especially on the soybean side, as you think about uh, the stock situation. Um, but, you know, you got to kind of, you know, build your own expectation of, of what you think is going to be happening. The other thing here, before I move on to the next chart, Jim, we had a question come in uh, through Sarah about marketing 2022 soybeans. You have any thoughts on that? I haven't put a lot of thought into it. I do know that Michael has a chart coming up, which, uh, you know, I think his case farm is based on a 50-50 rotation, so that would include corn and soybeans. But he showed profitable levels uh, at current futures prices um, for for 2020 his 2022 uh, projections. But you have any thoughts on, on on pricing 2022 soybeans? It's a great question, and and I was hoping you'd answer that. So we'll, we'll go for that. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I, you know, I th it, it is a great question. And if I was going to do it, though, I'd want to do it in a way that gives me some flexibility. So uh, sure. probably what probably what I wanted would want to do in that environment uh, would be, first of all, probably not do it in the cash market. Right. I'd be reluctant to do that at this stage. But you could consider selling futures and then create a synthetic put uh, by buying a call. And that's probably the, the direction I would go. And, you know, you could reduce. You know, you're looking at, if you make a sale, you're looking at doing that because it's profitable prices being offered. What usually holds us back from doing that is the concern that, oh, we priced too cheaply or we priced, you know, too early. So to get around that, that's why I would think about using a synthetic put where I would purchase an out of the money call option. Um, if you got, I haven't looked at the premiums lately, but, you know, if you get out of the money, uh, you should be able to get some that, that are reasonable in terms of cost. Um, and that would give you that confidence to say, well, you know, if things kind of go haywire or we have a big shortfall in production, et cetera, and prices take off, I'm, you know, I've, I've got some coverage there. Um, yeah, I think uh, Michael Langemeyer is uh, the one who usually likes to say, let's lock in those margins. And so I'll let him talk about that a little later, but uh, locking in some profitable prices on a portion of your production for 2022 makes good sense. I think it's certainly, certainly a strategy you want to be thinking about. Let's put it that way. Sure. No, I think that those are great points. So just to round out kind of our discussion here of, of uh, kind of marketing opportunities on soybeans. Again, I have a similar chart to what I had for corn. So this is again, an average new crop soybean futures price index where I'm looking at soybean futures from January one um, prior to harvest. So again, we're looking at uh, November 2021 uh, soybean futures starting in January of 2021, right? And I did that for 30 historical years uh, and created the index. And again, you can see the, the pattern here is somewhat similar to what you see for corn, but, you know, the, the timing of those peaks is slightly different. So basically we have, you know, on average, we typically see uh, those soybean futures prices kind of increasing uh, in those early to mid summer months um, and, and then kind of reverting to those harvest time lows uh, right there in September and October. And so again, the implication here is, is you think about uh, new crop soybean pricing opportunities from a futures point of view, you know, 
June, July tends to be when we see those markets make their peak. Uh, a slightly later time frame than what we saw for corn, but really, you know, we're smack dab in the middle of that time frame. Again, we've seen futures break pretty strong, uh, pretty hard following the report last week. A lot of negativity here. But again, to, to expect that, you know, the highs that we saw last Thursday, which I think were, were contract highs, if not, they were close to the contract highs, um, were the, the high for the soybean new crop, soybean futures. Yeah, that's not all realistic based on what we see in the timing of this chart. Now, again, could we see those increases again? Sure, there's a lot of impact, uh, things that could impact that. Uh, but as you think about it, you know, you're, you're evaluating, well, you know, I, maybe I missed my opportunity. Again, even though it's quite a bit lower than where we were last week, I, th I think you still have to take a really hard look of, are you willing to walk away from what we still have when, when you see this chart, you know, we see this pattern kind of slowly declining uh, as we move towards harvest. And, and, you know, that's something that people really need to think hard about, I think. And so again, just looking at it from a slightly different perspective, this is just using FarmDoc's uh, price uh, distribution tool. So I went in this morning, pulled out the most recent uh, soybean futures prices for that uh, new crop November contract. So again, soybean futures are trading, trading at $13.85. Uh, I looked at the probability of a $2 or more decline in that price. So what's the probability of, of soybeans being $11.85 or less uh, come, come harvest time? That was about a 17% chance, right? So you got about a 17% chance that we see soybean prices decline $2 or more between now and harvest, uh, which is a little more likely than what you would typically see. And again, we've already talked over and over about the volatility that we have in markets right now. And so, you know, I think you just got to be realistic in thinking about, you know, even though the prices aren't at their peaks today, should you be thinking about uh, still maybe taking a position on, on a portion of your crop to lock in what profitable levels are still there? Yeah, it's a good point. And, you know, I think one of the things that we, we sometimes forget about is, is, particularly with the volatility we see in soybeans, although the last few days have driven it home a little bit, um, is how volatile those prices can be. And sometimes you think, you kind of get acclimated to prices being where they're at and kind of forget how rapidly that can change. And your your use of a $2 move is, is uh, instructive, right? So, so uh, Michael, you've taken a look at new crop conditions for soybeans a little bit like you did on corn. This is a slightly different uh, slightly different story than we saw for corn. Uh, Indiana is relatively strong compared to the 18 major states. However, I would like to point out, I, I recently drove from West Lafayette to Omaha. I saw very few bad fields. And so I think what's driving, what's taking down the 18 major states is North and South Dakota, uh, North Dakota in particular. Uh, North and South Dakota, uh, if you look at prospective plantings, represent one out of every seven acres of soybeans in the United States, if those prospective plantings actually occur. Uh, we'll find out in a couple of weeks. Uh, and, and North Dakota right now, uh, only 25% of the crop is rated good to excellent. Uh, for South Dakota, it's only 45%. So they're really pulling down uh, those ratings for the 18 major states, uh, given how important they are uh, in terms of soybean production. 
Um, I want to I, I say several things about this chart. Uh, first of all, we look at 2021 or any year for that matter. We have to remember that a part of 2021 represents uh, selling half of the crop, half of the 2020 crop uh, in 2021. And so I'm assuming 50% is marketed after the first of the year. And, and then the other part of the 2021 uh, income is driven by what's happening this fall. Uh, and so I, I did want to point out this is accrual income. And so it does include selling the 20 crop uh, and, and selling the 21 crop. But one of the things that's very obvious from this chart, and this has been bouncing around a little bit, uh, but it's been a fairly consistent story for the last two or three months. Look how strong 2021 is, even compared to 2010, 2011, 2012. Uh, and so this is why it's so important to think about uh, your marketing strategy, your marketing plan uh, for 2021. 2021 uh, could be a really good year uh, if, if we get prices similar to what Nathan was talking about earlier, that 550 corn uh, and 1350 soybeans, is which, which is what I've used uh, uh, if, uh, to project the, the net farm income per acre uh, in 2021. So 2021 is, is shaping up to be an extremely good year. What's been a little surprising, and I've been revising this every month, but what's been a little surprising is how good 2022 looks. 2022 is looking uh, to be just as strong as 2020, which is considered a, a pretty strong year, uh, given where we were at from 2014 to 2019. And so, and so uh, just to summarize this chart, uh, 550 corn and 1350 soybeans are good prices compared to the break-evens. And so think about marketing a part of your crop now uh, rather than later uh, to preserve those margins. That's that's what I want to uh, say uh, what I say in summarization of this chart. So Michael, that, that last bar and that comment you had about 2022 kind of gets at the question we had from a viewer about whether or not it makes sense to consider doing some pricing for 2022 crop. That chart would suggest this isn't a bad place to start, right? No, it certainly is. And I uh, certainly thinking about that. We're not talking large percentages here, but I uh, certainly started to think about that because uh, if you look at the 2022 prices, they're still relatively strong uh, compared to break evens. Of course, one of the uncertainties when we look at 2022, and for that matter, uh, late 2021, is is what is the what is inflation going to do to some of these estimates? I have I have included some inflation. Uh, in, in, the, in the estimates for 2021 and 2022, uh, specifically related to cash rent and, and fertilizer. Uh, but that's a wild card right right now. But uh, uh, having having said that, I still think, uh, you know, looking at some uh, pricing uh, for 2022 would be prudent. Going to the next chart. Uh, this just shows something very similar, only I'm looking at uh, looking at slightly different here. The contribution margin is looking at the return over, over variable costs. And so, of course, that's that's fairly positive. Uh, and then we got the net return to land, which subtracts the land cost, uh, regardless of whether you rent or own, we've subtracted a land cost there. And then finally, uh, looking at subtracting firm revenue, which include government payments and possible crop insurance indemnity payments, which are not going to be very large this year. Uh, at least we don't think they're going to be very large this year. Uh, we come up with with earnings or economic profit, and this just illustrates how good uh, 2020, uh, 2021, and 2022 are, are shaping up to be. When you see really large positive economic profit like that, uh, it tells you two things are likely to happen. First of all, we're going to increase the demand for machinery um, and buildings, perhaps. I, I say perhaps uh, because there is some issues there of inflation and uh, 
and shortages and these these kinds of things going on in, in those industries, but also suggests uh, you know why we're seeing the upward pressure in land values. And when you see economic profit like that, uh, one of the things that people do with that profit uh, is, is try to buy land. And so it increases the demand uh, for the land that's on the market. Just taking a little closer look at cash rent, uh, uh, we, if we go back, uh, we go back in time, uh, looking at uh, uh, 10, 11, and 12, for example, we had some really large increases in cash rent. In fact, in those three years, uh, cash rent increased over 10% uh, in each of those years. And so three straight years, 10, 11, 12, we saw some 10% uh, increases in cash rent. The reason why I'm, I'm saying that is we're seeing a similar uh, similar strength in, in, in uh, net return to land for 2020, 2021, and 2022. And so my green line here incorporates a 5% increase in cash rent. That's probably going to be tiny uh, compared to what we're actually going to see in 2022. If these net returns materialize, we're probably seeing something closer uh, to 10% uh, because of the very strong uh, net return to land we've seen uh, you know, the last two or three year period. And so, and so some uh, rather strong upward pressure on cash rents are suggested uh, with this chart. Um, back in April, we, we, we talked about the relative profitability of corn and soybeans. And so it'll be interesting to see what those actual plantings turn out to be. Uh, uh, at that time, it looked like soybeans were relative, pro relatively profitable compared to corn. Uh, soybeans, uh, since then, have, have seen some relative uh, weakness uh, compared to corn. So if you go to the next chart, uh, this is what it looks like at the current time. Uh, you know, obviously, we can't change what we did in 2021, but it looks like corn is going to be relatively more profitable. And we really haven't seen this strong of corn profitability vis-a-vis uh, -vis corn uh, since 2012, uh, at least in Indiana. This is looking at Indiana uh, data. They might be slightly different in Iowa and Illinois. Uh, where corn is, 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 is slightly more competitive uh, than what it is in Indiana. Uh, looking ahead at 2022, this is no big surprise. Uh, we're assuming similar profitability uh, in 2022. We will keep tracking this to see if this changes, uh, but we, we're not expecting any large changes in acreage. Uh, you know, early look at, at 2022 uh, based on what's happening right now. And so, and so bottom line, uh, both corn and soybeans are seeing strong, uh, strong margins. It's not just corn, it's, it's both corn and soybeans with corn seeing a slightly stronger margin uh, in 2021. So I, I go back to that, I'm, I sound like a broken record here. I go back to that saying 550 corn is not a bad corn price. And so, uh, and so corn in particular, it, you really need to, to, to take a look at marketing strategy with regard to corn in 2021. So Michael, that kind of takes us to our last slide. And I guess the reason I put this one in was if people were paying attention to the slide that you projected in April, and actually I think it was similar in some of the couple of the prior months as well. Um, do you think we might see a surprise on the acreage report with respect to soybean plantings? Do you think those returns in uh, late winter and, and even spilling over into early spring were strong enough on the soybean side to maybe encourage people to plant more beans, even more so than corn? I think both acreages could increase, but do you think they're going to be swayed towards soybeans? It's certainly possible. If it does happen, my guess is it would happen in Nebraska, Iowa, Illinois, 
uh, maybe Minnesota and some of those kinds of states. Given what's happening, uh, the the, the uh, what's happened in North Dakota and South Dakota, I'm I'm not sure whether you're going to see more soybean acreage up there or not. Um, and and what's up there isn't in, in very good condition right now. But but we certainly could see and uh, in, again in that uh, uh, those some of those main Corn Belt states, we could see slightly more uh, soybeans. Uh, you know, than we saw in, in the uh, prospective plantings report. So that kind of leads us into our conclusion, and that is, uh, you know, we've got some serious issues here with respect to acreage this year. Uh, before the report or before the webinar started, we, the three of us were talking about the fact that the acreage report is always an interesting report. It's going to be above average in terms of interesting this year because ours, um, it, it most of us were surprised at the planted acreage or intent, acreage intentions on the intentions report in March. We thought the actual acreages would come in larger than they did. And now it's going to be interesting to see when farmers report what they actually planted as of June 1 and, and what they intended to plant in early June, uh, whether or not we actually exceeded those numbers. And as Nathan and I were discussing earlier, um, I'm inclined to think that the current market is embedded in it, uh, an increase in acreage above what was on the intentions. The question is how much. So it's going to be interesting these next couple of weeks to watch the pre-release expectations with respect to what the industry or trade is expecting and then see the actual report. So with that, that kind of wraps up our webinar. We will discuss that acreage report on the Purdue Commercial AgCast podcast. So if you haven't tapped into that, I'd encourage you to do that. We'll do that in the afternoon uh, and that'll be released, should be available in early evening uh, on the 30th of June. So you can get our reaction. And then we'll have our next webinar following another WASD report from USDA uh, in mid-July. And of course, by that time, we'll know more about what's taking place with respect to growing conditions and maybe have a little better grip on some of the export considerations we've been discussing. So with that, thanks for joining us. Uh, tap into our website, purdue.edu slash commercial ag for details about both commercial agcast and the upcoming uh, webinar and, and other information from the Center for Commercial Agriculture. And so on behalf of the center and my colleagues, Nathan and Michael, uh, thanks for joining us. I'm Jim Minter.